Hello, everybody. How are you? Um, we're reading uh, The Prisoner's Wife uh, memoir by Asha Bandel. And um, we're going to try audio reading, as I said in the previous video. So here we go. I've been asked over and over. And I've told them, yes, it was true. And there was some women from whom ugliness and hurt was the texture of their story. But it simply was not the picture that I had to draw. Asha, some have argued, girl, you now have blinders on. He might be great now. But who is he going to be when he comes home? I don't know. I respond. Who will I be? Rashid could come home and be horrible to you. I've been warned. Yes, I tell them. Of course, that's true. But Rashid could also come home and be wonderful to me. None of us know tomorrow, and only this moment, now, this time, already recorded in history. And this moment when I am kissed, nurtured, rocked, and then set a case by the love I have been given, this moment is the only real thing I know. That and also this one other thing. That there are so many people who are lonely without love and without passion in their lives. I know what I have. As difficult as it may be, it's the most precious of all gifts. Love. And I couldn't just give up without a fight. This is rare. This desired thing. This thing which is life sustaining. Could I? Could they? I ask. I want to know this. Could they reject the greater love they've ever known just because it came from the worst place that they've ever known? Still, I am aware that all things happen in a context. And so Rashid's many charms are notwithstanding. It is true that there was this confluence of events in my life. And together they probably assisted in making him so significant to me. The world is so magnificent. The way it keeps rebirthing itself to you if you're amenable. And if you're amenable... The way the world comes will be exciting, new each time, in different colors, different shapes. For me, a brand new world was born when I became a student in the City University of New York. I majored in political science and black studies, not realizing that within each classroom, I would find a piece of myself scattered pieces of a black female me just waiting to be scooped up and reattached for the first time in my life 
a life which had been dominated by white history, white cultures, white literatures, white music, white sensibilities. A life where black was a metaphor for less thing. I was reading books with characters and experiences that I understood. I was finally offered a history that went beyond slavery to include that which was black and successful, black and intelligent, black and encouraging. Learning this left me with a range of emotions, I think common to any conquered people. The greatest, the most profound one I had was love at last for myself. A black woman, a woman who indeed had a place in history, if not in high school textbooks. For the first time in my entire academic history, I was studying the literature of black people. James Baldwin and Zora Neale Hurston, Buchi Emecha, and Chanu Echebe. I learned that there was more to my ancestry than slavery and the civil rights movements, which during my grammar in high school years was the only context in which I heard black people ever being discussed. I could, at the pivotal juncture in my academic career, study Malcolm X, not as an extra credit project, but as an extraordinary international political figure who had moved from prison to the banding conference to the organization of Afro-American unity. I am embarrassed to admit it, but this is, I know it had to be said, for the first time in my life, I was truly completely proud to be black and Indian. I never felt that before. Not once, not all the way. But at the same time, I was virtually falling in love with the history, my history and culture. I was also feeling a huge sense of grief over what had been done to my people, what had been lost would have been murdered. There was a certain rage, a nearly unmitigated rage at the people who had the policies and laws and institutions which could only be called evil. I tell you this so that you understand how easy it is to those days to, de to determine who was friend and who was your enemy. Later, as I matured, I took in more and more information. Nothing stayed simple and clear, but it was then literally and figuratively a black and white situation. And it was through this lens that I first saw not only Rashid, but all prisoners. Back then, I saw all prisoners as a victim. And I told Rashi this. Yes, well, a lot of us also think like that in the beginning, he said to me. And some people really are straight up victims at first. 
we say we've all politically, we all are political prisoners because of the politics and of the criminal justice system. And race is always an issue. But you know, as you get older, you want to take responsibility for all your life because if you live long enough, you do good things too. And I began to want to claim the good I had done. But if I was responsible for that, then I had to be responsible for the bad too, right? Yeah, it was only the emerging worldview which influenced my choices. There were indeed some tangible and devastating things which happened all at once in the year, just before I fell in love with Rashid. There were these departures. Suddenly, everything in my life was shifting aside, seeking as a fast exit. I was just there, crouched on the curb, alone, unable to see across the distances, unable to get perspective. The initial blow came when I was put out of school for protesting against the steady tuition increases and budget cuts, which were costing and closing in more and more students out of education. When we had rallied and marched and lobbied and then occupied the administration building of our school, and it was for this final act that a few of us were brought up on internal charges and found guilty and removed. For two reasons, this was a bigger loss than I had ever anticipated. First of all, I was the president of my student government and therefore largely defined by school activities. But second, my own parents had been administrators of the university and to be sure they disagreed with the tuition increase and budget cuts as well. But more than anything, they wanted me to graduate. They said this to me, and then as much as I waited to comply, I would in fact make them wait some five years before I paraded in black to the proud hum of pimp and circumstance. I'm sorry, pomp and circumstance. Fourteen years before, when I was 15 years old, I had walked a similar parade to the same song down the aisle of my high school auditorium. There were many, many valleys, long drops down, down further between those two days. And all that time, despite of my often hostile outward behavior, what had always been of the greatest importance to me is what of greatest importance to many children. I wanted desperately to please my parents. To make them proud. My parents, I knew, had made incredible sacrifices for my sister and me. To have a nice home and to go to good schools and be exposed to the arts. We were middle class but never rich by any stretch of an imagination. Whatever we had, my sister and I. It came as a long result of often odious hours by my parents put in at their respective jobs. And there were jobs that were not necessarily dream jobs. 
not my parents, in jobs that nurture your soul. My mother and father worked so that my sister and I could have the sort of option to work in any field we wanted. It would be a long time before I was old enough to understand this. To see my sister and myself as the major works of my parents' lives. My sister and myself as their legacies. And only then would my studies become an urgent matter in my generation. It seems most of us, we struggle for position and status. But my parents, they struggle for us, their children. And I believed I owed them. I knew I had been a very difficult teenager, more sullen, a worse student than the other young people my parents knew. My various misdeeds, the hanging out, the skipping school, the drinking, they had stolen away my chance for school. I would attend. In fact, I only initially made it into college because of the people that my mother had known. And then just as I settled down for four years later, just as I transferred into the city university and began making all A's, this the protests, the charges, and finally the suspension. In a sense, losing my student status in half of the senior year meant losing something of my parents. I felt a bit like they had given up on me. I was, after all, in my 20s now. What more could they do to me? Against the disastrous backdrop of being put out of school, my precariously situated marriage toppled. I was 23 years and two years into the marriage. It was not that we didn't love each other. My first husband and I, it was the love we, all, it was the love was all we had. And we needed so much more, all couples do. We need common passions, interests, and goals. We needed to enjoy speaking with each other. We needed then some great omniscient who could have explained him to me and me to him. What we had was silence. And in the face of the hard, that unfriendly quiet, my husband, he ran to work. And stayed there for sometimes 12, 13 hours a day. I ran to school and did the same. By the time we come home, what else was it for us to do but sleep? And as we did, we slept. We slept fitfully, angrily, accusingly. But most of all, we slept singularly. We slept until there was nothing left to do except crawl out of bed separately and go on out into those two distinct worlds we had created for ourselves. His on one side of the universe and mine on the other. And again, my parents, with their happy, healthy, four-decade-long marriage, my parents did not agree with or understand how after only two years it could have all fell apart 
everything had been so carefully constructed. I, I had all of us. I had I had listened to the experts, and I tried to follow suit. My first husband and I began with a life of expensive, a formal June wedding. I wore a white gown and a veil, a veil and my father walked me down the aisle and danced the first dance with me. We had joint bank accounts and credit cards. My husband said I didn't have to work, just go to school, and I went to school. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> I cooked and cleaned. 